Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews in your New Testament and on the, in the Black Pew Bible on page uh, 1001. We're in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Last week, we actually began our study, and we began our study of this book with the question, what is Hebrews about? And the answer, of course, is that it's about Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus over anyone and anything. And then we saw in the first two verses one of the ways that Jesus is supreme. He reveals God to us and God's revelation of himself in his son is better than all the revelation God has given of himself through the prophets over the whole Old Testament. Better. It's the difference not between uh, bad and good, but it's the difference between good and better, or between promise and fulfillment. Or if you think of it as an artwork, the Old Testament is a canvas in which an artist has drawn with black pencil and outlined a sketch, but the New Testament with the coming of Jesus himself is filled with vibrant colors and paint. And so what we have when when Jesus finally arrived according to promise and in the flesh people saw God better, had greater clarity about who God is and a greater completeness in the revelation or unveiling of who God is because Jesus is God, and we still have that. Tonight we see why that is more particularly as we continue in our study the first four verses. Why is Jesus a better revelation of God than any one or anything else? Let's consider that tonight. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is the Word of God. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. We pray that you would bless us by this word. Speak to our hearts. Show us Jesus. May he be exalted among us for his glory and for our good. So help us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
look to Jesus is the message of the whole book and these verses. He is superior is the language. Now, as soon as you heard me say better, you might, if you have a cynical streak or maybe an apathetic streak, have kind of been a little skeptical. We, we hear, after all, products time and again pitched to us as better, as new and improved, right? And so often with so little, little uh, visible, tangible, experiential newness or improvedness, right? How is it any better than the old and the unimproved? Uh, so we sort of immediately perhaps fold our arms and say, you know, you're going to have to prove this to me. Or we might uh, simply, and by the way, the author is going to aim at great length to prove that to you. That's the point of the book. So don't let your cynicism keep you from hearing what he has to say. But you might just be apathetic. You rather uh, maybe perhaps have bought into the view that, well, you know, no religion is better than another. They're just different than one another in various ways. And you shrug your shoulders rather than folding your arms and you say, look, I'll go my way, you go your way, and it's all fine. Now, I want to say if that's the case and you're here tonight, I'm delighted that you're here and we want uh, as a church to... um, to answer questions that you have about Christianity, even provoke you to think more deeply about Christianity, or perhaps in a way you haven't. But the attitude that, well, if it works for me, that's fine. If whatever works for you is fine. You know, that might be true with regard to your preference for pizza. I mean, you may love thin crust with anchovies, and I may love deep dish supreme smothered in cheese. And I could argue all day long about why my preference in pizza is better than yours. It may be true when it comes to pizza that it's all just preference. But that attitude or that mindset doesn't really work if you need heart surgery because you've got a valve that no longer functions and must be replaced or you will die. If you have two choices, and one is a guy who graduated the top of his class, did a Mayo Clinic fellowship, and then has worked at the Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Center for 20 years with experience, versus a guy who just graduated and you're going to be his first patient, we all know who you're going to choose. You're going to make the right choice. You're going to make the better choice, because one is better in that situation. And Hebrews is saying to us, these are matters of life and death, spiritual life and death, and your soul's eternal happiness, or your soul's misery. And what is the better or best revelation of who God is, versus revelations or non-revelations that, that cloud who God is? And so here in our text, he shows you why Jesus is better. And therefore, why you and I ought to look to him. It's because, he says, of who he is, verses 2 and 3, and what he has done, verses 3 and 4. And tonight I want to just take the first part of that. Who he is. And he says five things about Jesus. Notice them. In the first place, he says... God gave all things to Jesus. 
He's the inheritor. You see it in verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Notice that language. Long ago, verse 1, God spoke to the prophets many times, many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he, what, appointed the heir of all things. Romans chapter 11. From him and through him and to him are all things. Now this raises the question, of course, because, because if everything was made by him, and actually the next phrase says that, then of course it already belongs to him as its creator. Why would you talk about him inheriting everything? What is he speaking of here? Well, he's speaking here of God the Son having come in the flesh and lived as man, the only perfect man, even the God-man, even the one mediator between God and man, the one who is going to and is destined to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken in consummated glory forever. Now, you and I don't have to know a whole lot about inheritance law to know that if all of the inheritance is going to one, then if we are going to receive any portion of that inheritance, we'll have to get it from the one to whom it has been given. And only if you are rightly related to that one, and only if he shares it with you, can you enjoy the benefits of it. And he is willing to share with you. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. He's absolutely willing to share with his people. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says of believers in Jesus that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ of all things. Because everything belongs to him. Everything is being given to him. And he delights as an elder brother to share it with all his people. And so you've got to be rightly related to him. You need to belong to him if you're going to enjoy this. A story is told by the former attorney general of South Carolina, Henry McMaster. He gave a speech at Washington and Lee University where he described that as a young college student, he had taken an internship to work in the Senate office of Strom Thurmond, then of South Carolina. One day in the senator's offices in Washington, D.C., Senator Thurmond told McMaster and another young intern to join him on a trip to the White House. He was going to meet President Nixon. The senator had a meeting set up with the president, and he wanted these two young interns to come along. And so at the gate house of the White House, the guard stopped the senator's car and asked about who would be entering the White House to see the president. And Senator Thurman said, well, of course, having been given clearance that he was going, but he was also bringing with him his young interns. They, in turn, said, well, no, the interns will not be allowed to go in, but you can proceed forward. He, in turn, said to the guard, no, sir, you don't understand. They're with me. And though the guard protested, Senator Thurman 
stood fast. Sir, they are with me and they go where I go. And they did. And that is a good picture in a sense of what it means to be united with Christ. In this sense, wherever he goes, we go. The access he has into heaven, into the bosom of the Father, we have that same access. The inheritance he receives everlastingly, we have that same inheritance in and with him. Not because of us, but because of our relationship and union with him. Because it all belongs to him. So that if you believe in Jesus, his destiny has also become your destiny. So this is the first reason Jesus is better. God appointed him heir of all things. God never promised that to any Old Testament prophet. But he promised it to Jesus. Now the second thing is this. God created everything through Jesus. He's the creator. Notice the language. God appointed him heir of all things through whom also, end of verse 2, he created the world. This is the second reason. In other words, that the one to whom all things are ultimately given, he is also the one through whom all things were initially made. He's the creator. He's in fact the co-creator here with the father of all things. He's the agent of God in the creative work. The the writer here is, is reminding you all the way back to Genesis 1. We're in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he's saying Jesus was there doing that work. The eternal son of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 puts it this way. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Some people, you start talking about a, a text on creation and God's creatorship and of course what comes to mind is the question of evolution and the answer to the question how did everything get here how is it that the first thing got here and you basically have three options on this and you have not intellectually stuck your head in the sand to believe the christian option on this there are basically three options on how everything got here there's option one Which is that at first there was nothing at all. Absolutely nothing. No time, no space, no atoms, no molecules, nothing. And then something popped into existence. Something came from nothing. And everything we see now came from that nothing. But it is incredibly difficult to believe that billions of galaxies, stars, planets, animals, and people came from nothing and that they just popped into existence out of nothing for no particular reason. There's no mind at work. It takes a massive leap into darkness against reason to believe that, and that's why so few people really do. That leaves you only one other option that has two possibilities. So here's your second and third options. There has always been something. 
or someone. There has always either been something, an it, or someone, a, a you, a person. If it's an it, it's something that has always existed. It didn't get started. It's self-existing. Nothing outside of it brought it into being or sustains its being. It's self-existing. It's always existing. And it's some kind of a blob. Let's just call it that of some kind. With all the potential power of the universe stored up in it, however big the blob was or however small that blob was, but that blob has absolutely no communicative skills at all. It has no personality. It has no mind. It has no desires. It has no cares. It has no love, no interest in you. It's just an it, a thing. That's it. That's Carl Sagan's view. The universe is all there is or ever was or ever will be. No personal being always existing. But that, of course, is the third view, that there's not just that, that there wasn't just an eternally existing it, but an eternally existing you or person or being, not a blob, but God, of course, who self-exists. Nobody helps him to live. He's always existed. Nobody brought him into being. He's all-powerful. Everything you see is, is accountable and responsible to him, ultimately. This person brought into all things. This person, the writer is saying, is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, maybe you're tempted to think that the Big Bang did all the work here and not God, that the blob existed, it exploded, it flung muck everywhere, and that's how everything happened. But, of course, you have to ask the question, well, what happened before the Big Bang? What was there before that? And that's a difficult question to answer. Science certainly can't answer that question. Darwin didn't answer that question, and evolution doesn't answer that question. It's puzzled the minds of people. If there was a blob, an explosion of an it... What, what brought all that about? What was there before that? It's interesting that the, the, the very outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins, an evolutionist, in his attempts to explain how we got the world that we live in now, a world filled with intelligence, filled with creativity, as well as love, he said at one point it came from, it didn't just explode into existence from nothing, Uh, but that it it came from possibly being seeded by aliens. Now, he may have retracted that view now. I'm not quite sure because he was roundly ridiculed for it, and it just begs the question, where did the aliens come from? But you know that the discoverer of DNA, Sir Francis Crick, also held that view. How do you get intelligence? How do you get personhood People, will, love, affection. Well, you got to have something with personality. You got to have something that lives, not an it, but a you. And so I just simply say to you, you haven't stuck your head in the sand to believe the Bible's view of this that before all things came into being visible and invisible, there was always God Himself. And the author is saying, God brought everything into being. Through this son, he's the agent of creation. That's a satisfying answer, friends. He made it. And in him we live and move and have our being. He knit you together in your mother's womb. 
The idea here that he created the worlds is not just the, the word universe or cosmos, but it's actually the word for ages. He, he created not just the stuff and sort of stood back like a deist, you know, like winding it up like a clock and let it go, but he actually he created the time periods. He created the places and ages in which people should live, and he was intimately involved in your being brought into being. This is Jesus. That's the second reason you should believe that Jesus is a better revelation than anyone or anything else. Third, God's glory is seen through Jesus. Notice he begins to speak directly about him at verse 3 when he says he, that is Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, he's the, the shining out of God. He's the manifestation of God's own weightiness, his glory, his heaviness, his his beauty, the the sum of all his attributes. And he is the shining out of that. It's not just, as some translations take it, that he's a reflection here. I don't take it this way. A reflection of the glory of God as though God is the sun, but Jesus is the moon, and Jesus just bounces the glorious light of God back onto the earth. It isn't just that he reflects the glory, but he's rather the very outshining of the glory of God. In that respect, we might say, and very carefully, so we don't walk into heresy land, that Jesus is in a way the the beams of sunlight that flow from the sun. How do we know of the glory of the sun but by the light and the heat that flows to us through its rays. And in that sense, those beams are part of the sun and they have come from the sun, but they put the sun everywhere and on display. In that sense, I think we can speak of it this way. Jesus said it this way, I think, in John 14. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, he says to his disciples, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And then, of course, Philip, one of the disciples, said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The ancient Nicene Creed picked up on this idea when it speaks of Jesus. And it uses the expression that Jesus is God of God. Light of light. When the author of the great Christian Christmas hymn, and our Christmas hymns are filled with this kind of high theology. So if it troubles you that we're talking about deity and humanity, well, we're going to all sing about it this fall. And I assume that you'll do so somewhat cheerfully. In the hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, in the second stanza, we sing, and I won't sing it for you, God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him. If you want to know what the Father is like, what God is like, 
this passage is saying, look at the sun. He is the radiance of God's glory. But, fourthly, he's more than that. And you might misunderstand me or the passage, as it has been misunderstood throughout history by some, to, to, to hear me saying something I'm not saying, that Jesus is something less than God himself. And the next phrase actually clears that up for you because notice what it says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, God's nature is perfectly manifested in Jesus. By exact imprint here, he uses the word for a stamp, or it's used that way in other places. Um, It's the only place it's used in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, it's used for a stamp that makes an impression. So, for instance, you might have a, a stamp that you would press into soft wax, and it would reproduce whatever was on that stamp itself, and the two would have perfect correspondence if done properly the one stamping the other, and they would be identical. It's that kind of an expression here that Jesus is the exact imprint of what? God's nature, he says. What does that mean? Well, it's referring to God's essence or God's substance. But don't go down the wrong rabbit trail on that. We sometimes think of substance as something that you can touch and feel, something physical. We don't mean substance in that way. But whatever it is that makes a thing the thing, that is its essence, that is its nature, that is its substance. And this passage is saying that whatever it is that makes God, God, that is what Jesus is. He is not just God-like, he is God himself. And hence he can be the radiance of the glory of God. And this is what's involved in part in the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that Jesus is co-eternal and co-creator with the Father. The same in essence, the same in nature. One in nature and yet three in person. And if you have your head completely wrapped around that, uh, then I'd love to talk to you afterwards. How can God be both one and three at the same time? And how can we fully comprehend that? We can't fully comprehend that. And I think it was Augustine who said, if if you have a God small enough for you to completely understand, uh, then um, you don't have a God big enough to, to worship. But the point is this, that Jesus is divine the father is divine yet the father is not the son and jesus is not the father they are distinguishable as persons yet both with the holy spirit all three are three persons in one divine essence one divine being well it'll blow your mind i understand and it's been said better than that but when you see jesus is the point you are seeing god in him colossians says all or the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Or as somebody else put it, in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. And this is what we see when we read the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, like as we're reading John, when you see a leper 
throwing himself at the feet of Jesus saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And you hear and you see Jesus actually reach out his hand, touching the leper and saying, I am willing, be clean. When you see that kind of compassion and the power that makes him clean, you are in fact seeing God's compassion and God's power. When you see Jesus meet a woman at a well, a woman with a bad reputation, a woman known for loose morals, multiple husbands, and the woman, she, the, the husband she's with now isn't even uh, her husband. And she's been doing what? She's been seeking to satisfy her quench or quench her desire or satisfy her desire, but she sought that in the arms of men in some way. And Jesus says to her, I will give you living water that will satisfy you forever. What you're seeing is God in kindness and generosity being sweet to a lost soul. When you see Jesus angry at the Pharisees who were religious leaders putting burdens of duties on the backs of people they could not bear, you are seeing God being angry. When you see in the Gospels Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because of Jerusalem's hard heart. Because what did they do? They killed the prophets. And he knows they're going to kill him. And he is in grief, weeping. You are seeing God's grief and tears. And when you see Jesus crowned with thorns, nailed on a cross, spat in the face, suffering in the place of sinners what sinners deserve that we might be spared you are seeing the very demonstration of the love of God for you in Jesus because Jesus is God and there's a fifth and final reason he's the best revelation of God you will ever have fifth God's creation is it says upheld by him Notice the language. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains all things. It's not just that he's, he, he reveals God because he is God. And it's not just that he made all things and will one day inherit all things. But, but it is that in the meantime, he is continuously sustaining everything by the word of his power. He, the word is used for bearing, bearing or carrying something along towards its appointed goal. This is often contrasted, as many have said, with the Greek mythological figure Atlas, who is this giant, I suppose, of a man or, or God. I don't even know my mythology well enough, but he's carrying the weight of the world on his back and he's just holding on for dear life, so to speak. But he's not moving it anywhere. He's not making progress in history. He has no purpose and goal in mind. But Jesus is different than that. He is actually providentially sustaining and moving all things towards their appointed end in keeping with his plans and goals. And that is true on a cosmic level so that we can say laws of uniformity, uh, the predictability of gravity, 
the the uh, pulling force of atoms that holds things together that keeps everything from flying apart. All those things, of course, the scientific predictability of various kinds of laws. Well, those are all ultimately manifestations of Jesus bearing, bearing everything along to its appointed goal as he holds all things together, of course. But more than that, this is very personal implications which can bring either fear or comfort to you. How? And here's where we close. You know, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is out on his, a boat with his disciples. And it's evening, and they were crossing the lake. And a great windstorm arose. This is Mark 4, verse 37. And the waves are breaking into the boat, so that the boat is filling with water. But he's in the stern and asleep at the back of the boat. And they wake him. Now these are, these are commercial fishermen who know their way around a storm on a lake. And they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And verse 39, he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea, saying, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, why could he tell it to stop? He could tell it to stop because under his command, it had been blowing. And the disciples begin to realize that because at verse 41, it says they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it's kind of funny. Because they were fearful for their own lives that the boat might capsize in a storm. But it, it, that fear was nothing compared to the fear that they had when they realized who it was that was sitting in the boat with them. God in the flesh. Can't you see them with their eyes wide open? Terrified? What does it mean that he's here? Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? This is the kind of power he has as he sustains all things by the word of his power. Which means the very molecules that hold your body together at this very moment are held together at his command, by his will. That your next breath is sustained by the Lord Jesus. That your next heartbeat or its end. Which then means... That the very hands he has given to you and the eyes and parts that he has given to you that you use, as do I, in iniquity, rebellion, and sin, are even at the very moment we are using them, being sustained by Jesus as we do so. Which shows not only the arrogance, pride, and foolishness of us, but the great grace and patience of Jesus that he would keep us alive even now. So Jesus is either with you and for you, or terrifyingly, he is with you but he is against you. 
If he is with you and for you, there is unspeakable safety. If it is the second, then you and I are like rats trapped with no hope of escape except in Jesus. But if you put your hope in him, you will find escape and freedom and joy in a creator who was crucified for you that he might be all in on your behalf working for your good so that you can hold on to promises like Philippians 1.6 he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus so let me ask you this is it fear that weakens your faith and this passage is saying to you, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the mamas and the papas in his hands. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hand. He has the whole world in his hand. In his hand. And if you are in him and he is in you on account of his work on the cross on your behalf, you are safe. And God is all for you. But if you are outside of him, you need to be in him. You need to believe in him. Don't marginalize him. Don't ignore him. You cannot escape him. But he offers you better things. He offers you pardon from God. He offers you peace with God. He offers you the hope of paradise with God, sharing his inheritance with you forever. See how superior he is? What other gods can compare to him? What other Old Testament prophet, as great as they are, can compare to this son? Are you wondering if it's worth it to follow him? In light of what suffering may come or what suffering you are experiencing? It is worth it. Are you wondering, or wandering I should say, and getting distracted from him by the trinkets of this world, by its little light and momentary pleasures and distractions. Those things are not worth it. But Jesus is. Pay closer attention to him, Hebrews says. He's God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Your creator, your sustainer, the provider of your inheritance. Trust him. Worship him. Adore him. And let that adoration whet your appetite for what will one day be yours in glory. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks that you didn't spare your son, but you gave him. You, you love the world in this way, that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Help us to trust in him for just that, and to behold his glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.